Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18. If you need a Bible, uh, there will be ushers coming up and down the rows. Just raise your hand. We're going to be going through all of King, or 1 Kings chapter 18. It's 46 verses. I'd love to have God's Word in front of you this morning. Um, it's interesting. We are in the third week of a series on Elijah, and uh, I laid out we plan to do this series back in the spring, early summer, laid out every week, every message. Um, ten days ago, I, I sat with a bunch of different pastors on our staff as we do kind of ten days before every time a message is preached, and we went over the outline. We went over the main points, the delivery points of this message as a group. And then somewhere between laying out the outline for the message ten days ago and preaching it this morning, the world moved. Sometimes adjustments are called for. We've over the last eight to ten days seen the unprovoked attack and slaughter of Jews by the terrorist group Hamas. We wake up every morning to see if the ground invasion and the impending war between Israel and Gaza has begun. We see Israel surrounded on all sides by enemies. I woke up this morning, watched the news. Hamas is actually blocking its own citizens from escaping the country. Atrocities like maybe we couldn't have imagined eight to ten days ago. We watched on Friday as there was a call for a worldwide day of terror, and we watched nations around the globe rally for either the extinguishing of Jews or at least their removal from their land as a nation. Absolute chaos. A little bit closer to home, we watch some of the chaos in our own country, somewhere buried under the war news of Israel, is this absolute chaos we've got in our government. We can't get a Speaker of the House, so our government is frozen because a very small number of politicians are using this moment to gain favors, to gain appointments for their own agenda. We're watching in our cities and in our universities calls for violence against Jews and against the nation of Israel. We, we watch the news and we're appalled by what happened to babies in Israel along the Gaza border. Yet how appalled can we actually be when it was just a year ago we passed the abortion laws in this state? There's an uptick in evil everywhere you look, be it in our own country or be it in the Middle East. But please recognize what's going on in the Middle East um, before our eyes this past 10 days and what's going to occur over the next weeks, months, years. That has serious implications, not just for the Jewish people, but for God's people. Any follower of Jesus, anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus in this room, it has biblical implications as we see this play out. The, the city of Israel, we're told in the book of Revelation, is the place where Antichrist, before the return of Christ, will set up his headquarters. His objective will be to extinguish and exterminate every Jew and also the Gentiles who claim to be followers of Jesus, and that will be based in Jerusalem. We're told that when Jesus comes back to this earth to rescue his people and to bring judgment on the wicked, that he returns to Israel. 
It is the city of Jerusalem where we will see him set up his celestial kingdom where he will reign over this entire world for a thousand years. Anybody looking forward to that? Hey, hey, me too. Spoiler alert. Can I tell you how this conflict ends? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. But there is an uptick of evil everywhere we look. And, and I just don't think uh, the days are long where it's going to be easy to be a casual follower of Jesus Christ. I, I, I would say it this way. If, if you claim the name of Jesus Christ today, um, buckle your seatbelt. There's some turbulence. We're flying into some really bad weather. This battle that we're seeing in the Middle East, it's not just a battle between nations. It's not just a uh, battle between ethnicities. There's a spiritual battle going on between good and evil. The events that we're seeing around Jerusalem and Israel biblically are setting up the return of our Savior. So I got to preach a message, but my outline's outdated. It got blown up this week, but you've already got your notes in front of you. So can we just make a quick adjustment? Here, here's what I need you to do. My, my whole message is based on this idea of the person that God uses. Would you please cross that out? Because this message really isn't about the person that God uses. Replace the idea of the person God uses, write this in, the true follower of Jesus. The true follower of Jesus. The points that I'm going to make are not just the people that God wants to use. It's actually, if you're going to claim to be a follower of Jesus, these are the character traits that you're going to have to show based off the turbulence that lies ahead. This whole study is kind of built around a theme verse from James 5:17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That, that word nature, what it means is he has a human nature just like us. He has the same temptations. He has the same fallacies. And we're told to look at the Old Testament characters and the stories of the Old Testament. Paul tells the church in Corinthians, learn from those things. They're lessons that need to apply to you. And one of the things that I love about the Old Testament, when God lays out his story and his plan through history, he tends to use men with great flaws or faults. Have you ever noticed that? It's very, very true. He's not sugarcoating the men that he uses. He's not making them hero figures. He's saying, listen, these men had positives, they had negatives, they had strengths, they had deficiencies. I'm preaching the next two weeks. This week, you're going to see Elijah on a mountaintop. Next week, you're going to see him in a very, very low valley. God uses ordinary people. It's interesting. I'm going to put this verse on the screen. In Luke 9, we read this. Jesus has set his eyes towards Jerusalem. He is on his way to go to the cross. And to get there, he has to pass through Samaria. And as he passes through Samaria, he sends his disciples out to, to prepare for him in the cities that he is going to be in. The cities reject Jesus. And we read this. It says in verse 54, And when his disciples, and John, or his disciples James and John sought the rejection of Jesus by the Samaritan cities, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I'm noticing a little bit of prejudice there against the Samaritans. You picking that up in the text? But, but what James and John are doing is they're saying, hey, can we do what Elijah did? We're going to read about it this week in this chapter. Can we call fire down on them just like Elijah did in the Old Testament? 
And it says Jesus rebuked them because the problem is this. Too often we want to experience the things that Elijah experienced and do the things that Elijah did without ever becoming the man that he was. So what we're looking for this morning is simply this. What are some of the traits that we see in 1 Kings as we go through this chapter, 1 Kings 18? What are the things that we see that need to be evident in the life of a true believer? The big idea this morning is simply this. A point of decision is unavoidable. A point of decision is unavoidable. Here's the first thing that I see in the text. You're going to find it in the first verse of chapter 18. It says, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and in the third year, saying, go and yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Okay, here's the first thing that I see the true follower of Jesus Christ doing. They show up. They show up. God says, go, he goes. Elijah goes where God sends him. He does what God tells him to do, and he says what God tells him to say. This is a pattern that we saw last week when Cal preached from 1 Kings 17. In 1 Kings 17, 2, it says this, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. In 1 Kings verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Verse 10, so he arose and went to Zarephath. This, this idea of showing up, it's not a very complicated concept. He just went where God sent him, said what God told him to say, and did what God told him to do. It's actually a pretty simple life, isn't it? Gets rid of a lot of complications. When we're a people that show up and do what God tells us, say what he says, go where he tells us to go, man, we don't have to remember who we are and where we are. I don't have to worry about soccer Dave running into Pastor Dave. I can be the same place wherever I am. I don't have to remember the lies. I don't have to deal with the guilt and shame. Elijah's life, it's not easy, it's not without struggle, but it's pretty simple. He just does what God tells him to do. One of the things that I loved in Chris Nora's God at Work testimony is there was that moment where he goes into soul care, and there sits Brian Smoots, and he puts the Bible on his little tripad, his meaty hand. Did you guys see that? Like, like it's that simple. We're going to open this book, we're going to read it, and we're going to do what it says. And some would respond, well, it was easier for Elijah because God would show up and audibly communicate to him. Hey, guess what? God's communicating with you today. He's given you his word. He's given you his word. We read in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. And it goes on in verse 17 and says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When God calls Elijah, when he tells Elijah what to say and what to do, Elijah shows up over and over again. It's a pattern. It's a character trait. It's a commitment that he's made. Do you know that absenteeism is a real problem in our country? Are you guys aware of that? Like, like if you go to Forbes or Newsweek or any, any business rag, they're, they're instructing businesses on how to attract, retain and, and, and keep employees showing up for work. Uh, companies in our community, be it Gentex, be it Shape, be it Herman Miller, whoever, um, hey, you go to an interview, guess what the first question? Can we get that person to show up? <laughs> the bar's going down. Will you show up? You're hired. 
because we've got an absentee problem in our workplace. I'm not going to bore you with national statistics as it relates to church attendance, but can I just tell you that it's bleak? Can I show you just kind of a couple interesting things about our church? Can you put up the next graph? This, This is a graph that just shows September attendance over the last five years. That's all it shows you, our attendance over the last five years. You see it in 2019 before COVID. We were closed in 2020 because of COVID. When we reopened, our attendance was down maybe 40%. And then we grew 400 people between 21 and 22, and we've grown another 300 people between 22 and 23. So our attendance is rebounding, but it's still not our weekly attendance where it was back pre-COVID in 2019. But here's the weird thing about that graph. If you look at our soul care ministry, record amount of cases. If you look at our small group, record a number of people participating in small group. If you look... At our giving, our giving is strong. So what's going on? People aren't showing up as often. It's across the board. It's at small group. It's at weekend services. It's at high school ministry. It's at junior high ministry. We've got the same amount of kids, sometimes more kids. We just don't show up as often. Normal church attendance is no longer every week. It might be every other week. That's become the norm. Let me show you this next graph. This is just the attendance sheet that I get uh, texted to me every week to kind of tell us what the previous week's attendance was. If you look at that, it's interesting. Every service is growing. The 5 o'clock, the 9 o'clock, the 10 o'clock, the 11 o'clock, all of them have grown over the course of the last two years. Do you see that online service number? 838 people are currently watching online. While the service is showing, not looking at it later in the week, but during our services, are online watching our services. We have more people watching online than any service but the 10 a.m. at Grand Haven. It's our second biggest service. And by the way, I'm not dissing watching online. Kristen and I, we were out on the East Coast two weeks ago. We watched it online. I'm glad you can do that. If you're home, if you're um, disabled, if you're uh, dealing with an illness and you can watch at home, I think that's a great thing. I'm not dissing on that at all. But what it's showing you is every week, 800 people are making the choice rather than to attend church to watch it online. We've got an absentee problem. But I'll be honest, I'm not worried about the, the, the church. I'm not worried about what's going on in the workplace. I'm worried about what's going on in the hearts of the followers of Jesus Christ because I think we've got an absenteeism problem in the family. I think we've got mom and dads who aren't showing up. Hey, dads or or husbands, do you know the most precious gift that you can give to your wife is your time? Show up. Hey, parents, do you know what the most precious gift you can give to your kids? Your attention, time, show up. Oh, I know life's busy. We got work, we got hobbies, we got golf, we got hunting. We got our phones. Like, like we got a lot going on, right? The first thing that I see when God speaks to Elijah, God has his attention. Shouldn't be a big surprise that as you see more absenteeism, um, production in the workplace has diminished. They say absenteeism in the workplace costs us about a quarter trillion dollars a year. As, as church attendance falls, you see a culture that is also adrift. Did you see absenteeisms in homes? That's having an impact on our kids. 
what you see in the men that followed the Lord in the Old Testament, men like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, and Elijah, they went through long seasons in the wilderness, prove, going through what Cal called last week, going back to school, what Elijah did before God ever used them in mighty ways. And I'm telling you, turbulence is coming. You will never have success in the crisis until you have it in the process, and the time to buckle the seatbelt isn't when the car starts to spin. We've got to start showing up. We've got to spend time in God's Word. We can't neglect community. Here's a second thing that I see. Ahab's courageous. When, when it says in verse 1, boy, we're flying through the text, aren't we? All the way to the end of verse 1 already. Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. When God tells Elijah to go show himself to Ahab, that's a suicide mission. I, I'm not going to take the time to read verses 2 to 16, but as, if you were to read through them, here's what you're going to see. The famine in the land is very severe. They're out hunting for grass. Jezebel is killing the prophets of God. If you've aligned with Elijah, you're dead. They're hunting for Elijah, not just throughout the country of Israel, but they're going into neighboring countries. Hey, have you seen him? You better take a vow that if you see him, you let us know. In verses 2 to 16, uh, Elijah runs into a guy by the name of Obadiah. And he goes, hey, let Ahab know that I'm going to come see him today. And Obadiah's like, don't tell me because if you don't show up, I'm dead. Like, like there is severe persecution for Elijah to go back there. The go and go see Ahab, man, man, that took some courage to do what God was calling him to do. And then in verse 17, we read this. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, the troubler of Israel? So, so the minute that he sees Elijah, he's like, hey, are you the troubler of Israel? And I, I just want to point out, it's an amazing thing. When men are not following the Lord, when men and women are off chasing their own sin, when they're following idols, when they're worshiping other gods, the calamity that surrounds them due to their own choices is never their own fault. Have you noticed that? They always blame it on God. They get angry at God. They get angry at the messenger of God, the counselor, their small group leader, whatever. And this, this honestly shouldn't surprise us. It's interesting in Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus is preaching. This is early in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hey, what's happening to you? It's the same thing that happened to Elijah. You're the troubler in their lives. Elijah is the troubler of Israel. And what shocks me is not just Jesus' words, but when he said them. The Sermon on the Mount is the first recorded sermon that we have of Jesus. And 11 verses into his first sermon, he felt it was necessary to warn his followers, hey, there's turbulence ahead. There's a storm coming. Verse 18. Elijah answers Ahab. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 400 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. There's not a lot of give in Elijah. Did you notice that? The, the dude's pretty bold. He, he's done the math. 
He says, hey, get 850 prophets employed by your wife and gather them and the nation. Get them to Mount Carmel. It's going to be 850 against one. I just got to tell you, that takes some courage. Wouldn't you agree? And, and one of the things that Elijah realizes, that one with God on your side, that's a majority. That's a majority. So you see this courageousness, this boldness. First he shows up, then he's courageous. It was interesting this week. This question was asked. It's, it was asked to our president at a news conference. It was this. It was said, Mr. President, where do you draw strength and inspiration in these troubling times? And Biden answered. He said, from my faith. My faith that at the core of every human being is a spark of humanity and decency. It's got to be touched. It's got to be spoken to. That's what you do. That's why you're here. Now, now, I'm not looking to diss on his answer because I think that answer is shared by the majority of our culture and of our world. Hey, there's a spark of decency in everyone. That's the key. And listen, I believe we're created in the image of God and we could talk about that. But the events of the last week that I've watched play out on the news make me doubt the spark of decency inside every humanity. That's not where my hope is. My hope is that there's a God on the throne who is holy, that is ruling over the chaos even when I don't see it, that he will keep his word, he will keep his promises, and he will come back to rescue and to judge. That's where our hope is. We live in days that following Jesus are going to require courage. And you don't have to go looking for trouble. It'll find you. If you're willing to go where God sends you, say what he tells you to say and do what he tells you to do, oh, it'll find you. I was reminded, I've told this story a couple of years ago in a sermon, but 22 years ago, way before I ever even contemplated becoming a pastor, I was the JV boys soccer coach at Grand Haven High School. Fall of 2001. And I'd gone through tryouts with my team. It was my first year there. I'd cut a bunch of kids. I dealt with angry parents, had my team together. And, and about a week after cuts, the AD came out and said, hey, I need you to do me a favor. Would you put one more kid on your team? He didn't even go to tryouts. He was an exchange student. So the other parents aren't going to be happy about this. He goes, do it as a favor to me. It was an offer I couldn't refuse. I said, Okay. So I took this exchange student. What was interesting, he was at Grand Haven High School. He was an exchange student from Israel, and his name was Idan. And Idan was a very, very good soccer player. I was grateful for that. And he was an uber-intelligent kid. I actually loved the kid. But my goodness, was that kid abrasive. He was Israeli through and through. Every practice, every bus ride would include a conversation about how their military was superior to our military, their pilots were better than our pilots, how he couldn't go, wait to go back to Israel when it came time for him to serve in the military so he could be in conflict against Arabs. About a week after Idan came on our team, our season had already started, we played a couple games. Uh, the AD came out and said, hey, got another favor, would you be willing to take one more kid? Oh, you got to be kidding me. We've already started the season. He goes as a favor to me. I said, sure. I said, what's his name? Mohammed Mohammedev. <laughs> An exchange student from Turkmenistan, if I remember correctly. 
He was, he was a delightful kid. One of the nicest kids I ever met. But you understand, now a geopolitical crisis is on my JV soccer team. <laughs> and a week later, 9-11 happens. I get a call from the AD. Hey, can, I, can you help me? There's a problem on your team. Some of your players are picking on one of your players because of 9-11. And I'm like, nobody's picking on Mohammed. They weren't. They were picking on Adan because he was so abrasive. It gives you a little bit of insight into the geopolitical prowess of junior high soccer players. It's probably all the headballs. I don't know. They're picking on Adan. And I went out to practice, and Adan met me on the way to practice, and he was like, hey, can you tell these fools why it wasn't an Israeli who flew into the Twin Towers? I wasn't looking for the fight. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't do anything to get me in this box. I said, just a minute. Jogged over to my car, reached in the trunk, grabbed my Bible, and said, let me explain this to you. Do you know the Bible explains the root behind Israel-Arab conflicts? Do you, do you guys understand that? Do you understand where it explains where it came from, how it's played out through history, how it all ends? And we had a Bible study. We didn't get a lot of practice done that day. I caught some flack for that too, by the way. In that moment, hey, what are you going to stand for? The trouble will find you. Show up. Be courageous. Here's a third point. Deal with duplicity. Some of you are aware, but I'm preaching just here this morning. I don't have to run back and forth between campuses. Last night at the 5 and today at the 10, our preaching resident or our pastoral resident, the guy we're looking to plant with, Connor, preached here last night. He stayed on this point of dealing with duplicity from the text. The kid was brilliant. You need to listen to it. It'll be posted online this week. I'd encourage you to hear his message. But we read in verse 20, it says, So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said to them, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Simple guy. Create. Elijah's simple. He's made his choice. He tells Israel, quit limping around. The choice is simple. You want to follow Baal, follow him. You want to follow God, follow him. But quit Riding the fence. Make up your mind. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Look at this. It says, and the people didn't answer him a word. Not a word. Now, it's interesting. The reference to Baal in 1 Kings 18, it's speaking about a specific God. He's called the God of the storm or the God of rain. One of the reasons uh, that the rain was stopped for three and a half years is because it was a God speaking against this specific God that they were worshiping with. But as you study through Scripture, Baal can be a generic term as well. It can be used to refer to any God, any object of worship that the people followed. And sometimes we look at the Old Testament in these ancient cultures, we say, how ridiculous. They, they worshiped a rain God, and they worshiped a crop God, and they worshiped a sun God, and they worshiped all of this. I don't think they were as backwards as, as maybe sometimes we think that they were. At least they realized that when they were worshiping something other than the true God, they were actually worshiping another God. Anytime we worship something that's created, 
rather than the true God. Anytime that takes priority, anytime that thing sets our identity, we're actually worshiping a Baal, which leads to this question, what are the gods in your life? When was the last time that you did an idol check, that you went looking for the Baals in your life? When was the last time, maybe in the last seven to 10 days, have you at least asked yourself this question? What tends to steal your identity? What is the thing that if you don't have it, causes you to fall into despair, that you cannot have joy without this thing? What controls your emotions? What's the thing that you wake up thinking about every day? Be honest. Look for the bales in your life. The, the idea of neutrality, well, I'm kind of serving God, but I'm kind of serving these other things. The, the delusion of neutrality, it's a hoax. You either serve God or you serve something that he's created. It's one or the other, but everybody's serving something. Sometimes I'm shocked. I just want to ask, like, like, like how long? How, how long will you pray for God to bless your family men while you continue to look at porn, while you entertain flirtations in the workplace, when you're an absentee parent, you're asking God to bless your business, but you have no testimony. You're letting your career steal your identity. You're cutting corners. You lack integrity. Listen, simple men make simple choices. And what Elijah is doing, he's already made the choice, but he's confronting the nation. Just make a choice. It's simple. Who are you going to follow? And, and there's an urgency to that choice. He's saying, choose today. And the people didn't respond. Verse 22 Elijah looks at the people and says, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire in it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. What, what Elijah's doing here, the nation won't make up their minds. So he goes, I'm going to force a decision point. I'm going to bring this to a crisis. On this day, wavering, limping was no longer an option. It says this, and all the people answered, it is well spoken. I don't even know what that means. The NIV, it says it this way, and all the people said, what you say is good. This would be a really, really bad week to come up to me after the sermon or the service and go, wow, I really like what you said. Wow, I really love it when you teach. Is that all that the people were doing? Because I see no commitment to the God. I see no repentance. I see no turning. They're just going, man, we really love it when you speak. That sucks. That's not why we do this. Here's a third thing that I see, or a fourth you show up, you're courageous. Elijah's dealing with diversity. He will not allow the limping to stand. That's point three. Here's point four. Elijah trusts the gospel. Let me develop this for you. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first and for you the many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to him. They prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. 
but there was no voice and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. There's that word limp again. We saw it. How long are you going to limp between two gods? Now it says they limped around the altar. The New King James says they left about. The NIV said they danced. I don't know if they were dancing or limping. I figured that they were dancing. It just wasn't awesome. It was confusing to watch it, kind of like when I dance. It was one of those moments. And they cried, or it says this, they limped around the altar they had made. Verse 27, and at noon Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing, uh, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Are you starting to see a real tragic scene here? This is such a perfect picture of work salvation. The first point under understanding the gospel is this. We are called to serve God. God is not called to serve us. See, see what's going on here is there is a, is there is a reversal. The, the prophets of Baal, they're putting on a show. They're dancing, they're praying, they're limping, and it goes on for hours. And what they're trying to do is obligate God because of their performance that he must show up. God, you've got to show up. We prayed, you're obligated to answer. We showed up at church, you're obligated to bless our family. It's a picture of works salvation. Dancing around, believing that your efforts will force God's hand, be it to bless, be it to show up. Every time you do this, when you follow another God, you understand that it eventually leads to your own destruction. See, it wasn't just the bad dancing, the limping around. When that didn't work, they took the next step. They went into um, self-mutilation, destruction. Hey, spoiler alert, at the end of this chapter, God is going to crush the false prophets of Baal. All he does at the end of the story is do what they already began to do to themselves. False gods always disappoint. Verse 29, at midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. It's a very sad scene. Verse 28, or I'm, I'm sorry, it's your second point, but other gods, but other gods always lead to our destruction. Verse 30, Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which he had torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descending from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said to them, fill four large jars with water and put it on the offering and on the wood. Verse 34, do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. Does Elijah appear confident? You know, it's interesting. If in the text, I think we'd understand it better if it said, and he put gold and silver on the altar that he was putting something precious but when it hasn't rained for three and a half years the most precious commodity to the people was water and, and they have these large barrels of water he's like waste it 
We're not going to need it because God's going to come through on his promises. The very thing that was most precious, he douses the altar in. And I just think when the people of God show up, when they're courageous, when they deal with the duplicity in their lives and they're willing to give God the things that is most treasured in their possession, I just think God honors that, don't you? It says this, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So three times the people have been referred to. The first time they didn't say a word. The second time they said, boy, we really like what you have to say. Now you see a change of heart. God shows up in a mighty way and he grabs the attention of the people and it says, the Lord, he is God. I want to close with this. Where's Jesus in the story? Like, like when we look at any story, I'll often say, find yourself in the story. In this story, the question that I would ask is, where do you see Jesus in this story? Think, think back to what Jesus' disciples, James and John, said about the cities and the people of Samaria. He said, hey, should we call down fire and consume them? The entire nation of Israel is gathered on Mount Carmel. You've got 850 prophets. You've got Ahab there. You've got a nation that under five kings has lived in rebellion. God would have been fully just to wipe out everybody on the top of that mountain. Can we agree? They'd been in idol worship for generations. They had followed their kings into absolutely abhorrible conduct. Jesus doesn't strike them all dead. He doesn't talk, call fire on the mountain. He doesn't consume the people. What does he consume? The sacrifice. That's Jesus in the story. Where all the people dealt, should have been and deserved God's judgment... The judgment was poured out on a sacrifice in their place so that there would be in a season where they could cry out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. We've got to get this. We live on the other side of the cross. We have to see Jesus for what he is, that he was willing to be bruised. He was willing to be broken. He was willing to take God's wrath. He was willing to be consumed in our place so that we can be driven to repentance. And when the people finally made a choice, when they finally got off the fence, it's interesting to see what happens next. I don't have the time to go through it verse by verse, but here's what happens. Elijah goes, hey, you better get ready because though there's a small cloud on the horizon, what's coming is a downpour. That's God's blessing. After three and a half years of drought, God's blessing will come like a downpour when the people of Israel finally get off the fence. So the people of God, they show up. They're courageous. They deal with duplicity. And they trust the gospel. They don't trust in their own works. They don't try to obligate God. They're not going through the motions so that God will bless him. This is not a chip game where we put some chips in expecting God to give us some chips. What we do is fully acknowledge there's no chips on our side. All there is is a savior. And we call on him to save. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story. I thank you for it in this season because there are days where 850 to 1, like I can relate to that. And uh, our world is in a spiral. 
and yet you're on the throne. And Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and all of this is being worked out to accomplish exactly what you told us would happen in your word. For that reason, we will not be shaken, we will not become anxious, we will not become fearful. We will become expectant knowing that you are a God that keeps his promises, knowing that you are a God that at any moment can call down fire from heaven, accomplish whatever purpose that you want, even when we struggle to see it. Father, we pray. We pray for peace. We, we don't want to see what it seems like is going to happen next in the Middle East. But regardless of the direction, be this a local conflict, a world war, or climactic events promised in your word, we will trust in you. We'll trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.